Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas. It is the last Wednesday of the month, which means it's The Stacks Book Club Day. We're joined again by Nicole Perkins, the author of Sometimes I Trip on How Happy We Could Be, to discuss the 1992 classic, Waiting to Exhale by Terry McMillan. There are some minor spoilers in this episode. And be sure to listen to the end of today's episode to find out what our book club pick will be for November. If you're looking for even more from The Stacks, you can check us out over on Patreon. You can get bonus episodes, a Discord community, The Stacks Virtual Book Club, and coming very soon, the 2022 Stacks Reading Tracker. For more information, head to patreon.com slash the stacks. And I do want to take a quick moment to thank our latest members of The Stacks Pack, Sophie Peterson, Megan Pearson, Miriam Kaba, Brenda Berry, Zakiah Cowan, Leah Connor, Laura Schoberg, and Aaron Nuttall. I really could not make this show without you and all of the rest of the Stacks Pack. So thank you so much. Okay, now it's time to get into this month's book club pick, Waiting to Exhale with our guest, Nicole Perkins. Okay, everybody, it is time for the October book club conversation. We have brought back the wonderful Nicole Perkins. Nicole, welcome back. Thanks for having me back. I'm really excited for this episode because I cannot wait to talk about today's book. I'm so excited. (laughs) So today's book, for those of you who decided to press play on something without even reading the title of the episode, is Waiting to Exhale by Terry McMillan, the 1992 classic. I think it's a classic at this point. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Yeah, for sure. Okay. So there probably will be some spoilers if you haven't read the book. But if you don't care, go ahead and listen. If you do care, hit pause, read the book, come back. We'll be here waiting for you. Nicole, we always start the book club episodes pretty much exactly the same, which is what did you think of the book? Okay, so I still really enjoyed the book, but all you know, reading it as an adult in 2021, I was just like, ooh, that's a little cringy. But I was just like, wow, Terry McMillan knew what she was doing with this book. Like it was just, it was a really meaty book. And when I say meaty, I just mean like all the women had solid stories with them. And even though they were going through something different, I mean, they were going through a lot of similar things. They all had like brought a different like flavor to it. So I was just, I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed the book. 
I enjoyed it overall. Yeah. I feel like I come down sort of in a similar place, which is, but this was my first time ever reading the book or seeing the movie, which I know, like I had seen the scene with Angela Bassett a thousand times, you know, the gif is everywhere, you know, but Mm -hmm. I was sort of like, what is this book going to be? And I think that it has aged well in some ways and then aged terribly in other ways. And I found that to be really interesting. But I think, like you're saying, the the meat of the book, like the women and their relationships and the way that Terry McMillan has like four really fleshed out characters, I think that that is really impressive. And for them to still feel super relevant almost 30 years later, like that right. is really, really impressive to me. I feel like one of the things that the book does that I was sort of like, this is a lot, is like it takes on every single issue that ever happened to Black people in the history of America, <laughs> like since slavery. Like aside from slavery, I, like it was like AIDS, homophobia, fat phobia, mental health, promiscuity, single Black women, like men ain't shit, crack, being a mistress. Like it was like anything that Black people have thought about for more than five seconds. Like since 1965, <laughs> it's like is in this book. It that's really true. Um, even like gentrification, um, or mm-hmm. maybe like I don't know. Uh, I don't know if it's called reverse gentrification, but like when black people move in mass someplace. Yes. So I remember reading this book when it first came out. I was 15 at the time, and my mom, oh my, my mom had told me to read it because it was being passed around at her job. And she, you know, she read it. I remember seeing her reading it in bed uh, over, you know, several nights. And then she was, you know, one night she was just like, Nikki, when I'm finished with this, I want you to read it. I think you would like it. And I was like, okay, because she knew that I tend to, I tend to read stuff that was like outside of my age range at the time. Yeah. So anyway, so I read the book and I remember just like, gobbling it and just being like, oh my God, this is so good. Um, Also because it was just like this preview into what I thought adult Black womanhood was going to be like, you know, Mm. and in a way that I wasn't getting from my relatives who weren't necessarily always going to be very open about the relationship woes that they were going through. And then when the movie came out, of course I saw that and that was (laughs) incredible. It was so funny. And again, I felt, but I also felt like I was... um, seeing they it really brought the characters to life in a certain way and I felt more connected to them once they were on screen because it was just like I see my aunts and cousins you know with this stuff but I'm still one of those people who always is always going to think the book is better than Mm -hmm. the movie and so there were certain things where I felt like some of the characterizations of the women kind of had to be pushed to the side you know for a time or whatever but Reading it now, rereading it now, it's just like, ooh, this fat phobia. Like she, like, oh my gosh, <laughs> it was so much. And you know, in the movie, um, Gloria is played by Loretta Devine's character. You know, obviously we see her struggle with weight and what it means to be this woman who likes to cook and take care of people and the things that people say about her. Um, but we also see her joy. When the neighbor is just like, oh, well, I like me a big woman, you know, mm-hmm. and just being, you know, being like getting in touch with your body. And I wish that Gloria had been able to reach that moment without a man having to like 
give that to her. Um, right. But anyway, so yeah, it was a lot of fat phobia in there to the point where I'm just like, Miss McMillan, what is going on? <laughs> right. Because in the book, it's like even more than in the movie. I mean, in the book, it's like every other line. Like when they throw her the party and they're like, let's have a pizza party because we know she likes pizza. I was like, Jesus Christ, you guys. <laughs> like, Isn't she your friend? Right. And even um, the men in the book, you know, um, when Robin is um, first meeting up with Michael and she just keeps talking about how chubby he oh, yeah. is and how... I bet he likes to eat and all this kind of stuff. And Savannah, uh, Whitney Houston's character in the movie, um, when she like goes to this party at the beginning of New Year's and she says the women are looking at her real ugly. And she's just like, don't be mad at me because I'm not fat and ugly. And it's like, okay, right. well, <laughs> but maybe they're not. Maybe they're just looking at you because they don't know you, you know? Right, right. I don't know. It's just yeah. all these different little, different little moments. I was just like... This is unnecessary. Do you remember at the time, like in the early mid 90s, like was talking bad about fat people like that? Was that just like normal? Because a lot of me reading the book was like trying to reconcile what I feel and think now versus what I remember from the early 90s. And for me, I was like, is this was this in everything? Like, was everyone talking about fat people in this way? Like, I do remember Oprah was like always on her weight loss journey and it was like a thing. And I know like in pop culture, we definitely talked about weight in a way that we do not now. But like, do you have any recollection of that? I think part of it is it was a holdover from the 80s when Mm. all of these like exercise gurus and stuff like that. And, you know, like looking back, I think it was also kind of a way for people to be like, I'm not on Coke. I just exercise a lot, you know, from oh, the 80s, I see. I see. <laughs> so, you know, um, stuff like that. And um, but there was definitely a lot of like, what do you call it? Like exercise propaganda, you know, and like, right, like there um, is now. Yeah, yeah. But now it's just worded more delicately. You know, there's mm-hmm. just like, make a lifestyle change as opposed to right. go on a diet, you know, that kind of stuff. So the language is right. different because they know that people know that like actual fat shaming is bad and it's like, it's really affecting people, but they still just, the message is still clear that skinny people are beautiful, you know, whether you believe that or not, you know, but, um, right. But I definitely remember uh, that was that was definitely a part of like the atmosphere at that time and it was just um it was you know like buns of steel um exercise tapes and stuff like that and like the holdover of Richard Simmons and you know his um exercise routines and like jazzercise and Jane Fonda and all that kind of stuff so I think this is like even though black people to um I guess you could say tend to appreciate curves more or whatever mm-hmm. it's still just like if only if it's like the right kind of curves right sure. so um all that to say yes i definitely remember having that as a part of you know the pop culture atmosphere at the time but i just didn't i i had clearly had forgotten how much you know it was a part of it and i think also it's just um you know, Terry McMillan has always been a slim woman uh, herself, which is not to say that the author always puts themselves into the right. text. But I'm wondering if there was just something maybe that she just kept, I don't know, coming back to. Because it was it's like in every woman's 
section. Every time we get, a, you know, they, we rotate views, there's something about somebody being fat and unattractive or somebody right. being like worrying about somebody else being fat and unattractive. So it was just, it, um, it actually, I, I re- it really bothered me. I was really me too. concerned about, about it. It really bothered me too. I was and it because I'd never read the book. I mean, you're saying you didn't remember, but like it really snuck up on me because I've never heard anyone talk about it. Like mm-hmm. I've never heard it come up. Like waiting text hell is so great, but like there's a lot of weird fat stuff in there. Like there's some gross stuff about weight or food or whatever. Like so that was because usually I feel like with classic books, I know going in sort of what the issues are or like what the hot topics. <laughs> Not mm-hmm. to bring up a '90s clothing store or anything, <laughs> but like what the like what the hot takes are around it, and so it was definitely like, wait, why is no one talking about this? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know what that is. I guess um, it just kind of got pushed to the side and just became Gloria's story as opposed to the way that it was threaded throughout. So yeah, yeah it's very disturbing, actually. <laughs> yeah. One of the things you brought up was about Terry McMillan and like not that the author is any of the characters or it's their point of view necessarily. But one of the things I found interesting as far as the writing is that Savannah and Robin are sometimes, you know, in first person, I guess, where it's like, I did this, I did that, while Gloria and Bernadine are never. And I'm wondering if you had any thoughts about like why an author might do that or like what that does for for the book. You know, I was thinking about that as I, you know, we read it because, uh, you know, the movie, it became clear that it was Savannah's story or like, you know, she was the main one. And I always thought that it was just because Whitney Houston, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, she was the star, um, even though the other women were also very well um, respected at that time. But, you know, for Whitney, it was clearly her movie or whatever. But rereading it I was just like I realized that too and I started to think are Robin and Savannah Terry McMillan (laughs) you know like like did she split herself up and it was easier for her to talk about her experiences in dating because you know obviously you know later we'll get how Stella got her groove back and we're talking about this woman who has been single or you know dealing with heartbreak and trying to date again and so um, I mean, all of them go through that in the book, but I really do think that Savannah and Robin are kind of more, uh, more of Terry, maybe uh, in in the way that she has, you know, talked about her dating experiences and stuff like that. And um, I also think she wanted, um, as a writer, I think she wanted to make these characters more sympathetic, right? Like mm. these are these here are these two women who are unashamed about dating their dating lives who are you know maybe they have a a more sex than people think is proper or whatever but they still have needs so I think that's also part of why she wants or she wrote them in first person uh, more often is so that we can be less judgmental of them at least that's my hope (laughs) Yeah, I I was trying I've been thinking about that a lot cuz especially with Robin cuz sometimes she's in first person and sometimes she's not, which I found to be like clearly there's a choice here. This isn't just like, oh, Savannah's going to be in first person cuz it's easier for me to write her this way, but it's like with Robin it was sort of back and forth and I, I don't know. I definitely feel like it's Savannah's story. I feel like we start with Savannah both in the book and in the movie. Um 
But it feels so weird because Savannah is the most outsider one, you know, like she's the new one. She only knows Bernadine. Like, so that was, I don't know. I don't know why she did it that way. And I don't know that it changes the book much if if it's Bern, Bernie who's in first person or Gloria or whatever. Like, I feel like we get a lot of all of them, but it definitely is like a choice. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'm... I don't know. Maybe we, she just wanted um, us to be more inside the journey of trying to find a man and what that looks like for right. for black women. That's the only thing that I can really think of. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I agree. I guess, I guess, also just like mixing it up and mm-hmm. showing us like outside and inside. I don't know, but I found that choice in the movie to be particularly boring. Um, I was surprised by how boring the movie was. I have to admit, like, I really, I had to watch it in two parts because I started falling asleep. (laughs) Like, to me, the best part of the movie is the fire scene, which obviously, I guess everyone feels that way because it's the one you see all the time. But Mm -hmm. that happened very early in the Mm -hmm. book and the movie. And Mm -hmm. I was like, what now? (laughs) It's definitely a slow burn. And I think, I do think that by the time we get to them, like, sitting together in Gloria's house and drinking and getting a little drunk and stuff like that. Like we needed that moment of mm-hmm. silliness to kind of liven things up. I, uh, Forrest Whitaker directed, yeah, um, directed the movie. So I think he was just trying to like take his time with each character with their stories as much as he could. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny. Cause you talk about these highly jiffable moments now, right. In like this 21st century uh, way of, expressing how movies and TV shows have stayed with us. Cause it's like, that's kind of how you know that something has become iconic now. Right. And when you have like teens and young people referencing them or using them for their social media (laughs) responses and stuff. So I'm thinking like for each woman, they have that. So obviously for Bernadine, it is the fire, her walking away from the car on fire for Robin. It's not even really her. It is, uh, Russell, I think, when he's like shouting at her, you raggedy bitch, when she like kicks him out, right? So it's more him. Gloria has this scene where she's like, you know, she tells the neighbor, can I I always forget his name um, from the book, but uh, is it Marvin? Marvin? I can't can't remember. Yeah. Um, But when she's just like, oh, you should come over. I'm just cooking a little, we're just having a little ham, a little, you know, she's like, she lists off everything that she's cooking and she walks away and she has that incredible switch in her walk. So that, that's something that gets jiffed. And actually, now that I'm running through this, I actually don't think that Whitney Houston has a jiffable, jiffable moment from Oh, you go jiff with a hard Jay, like peanut butter. I go gif. This is like the age-long I, debate. I know. I say gif because the man who, you know, invented it says it's supposed to be gif. So I'm just trying to oh, respect I his, his... I don't know him, so sorry to that man. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone always gets one before it, but it's fine. No, I like it. I like I like a debate, so I'm happy yeah. to be here. I can't find his name. I'm not going to yeah, read the whole book again. It. But um, yeah, Gregory um, Hines. Yeah. But now that I've, I started this Whitney Houston's character Savannah doesn't really have a difficult. But she has the but she has the song. She has "Waiting to Exhale." Right, she has the song. She has the song. I mean, talk about iconic soundtrack. Yes. 
oh my God, that Brandy, Mary J. Like as it was going, I was like, well, I definitely owned the CD soundtrack. Like I owned the real compact disc, like a real Mm -hmm. 90s kid. Mm -hmm. Um, And and I feel like of all of the things from the movie besides the Bernadine scene, Mm -hmm. what has held up the best is that soundtrack. Right. Like that soundtrack. Baby face just really making things happen. Yes. I mean, it had all the heavy hitters of the late 80s and early 90s. Shantae Moore, Mary J. Blige. You know, (laughs) she sings Bernadine's theme where not going to cry. And she's, you know, she's like I, I was your secretary. Well, I can't yeah, even say that. The, line. I can't say. I can't say. And your secretary. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, but it was such a. It was such a good, a good soundtrack, and I think it was, you know, just at that height of movie soundtracks as well. Ugh. Like it was soul it was food. Good, I had yeah. I had the CD. I had the CD for that for soul food. Uh, Love Jones. Love and um, basketball. Love and basketball. Oh my god, love and basketball. Oh my god. Um, all of that, like the nineties were so good for movie soundtracks. I don't know what happened. I really don't know what I don't, happened. I, have I to, don't know. I wonder if someone's written about that. But yes, so the book, um around that time in the nineties, I do remember a lot of black people were moving to Arizona. And, oh, really? Um, yeah, because when you talked about earlier that this book had everything <laughs> in it. Um <laughs> I remember that. I remember like a lot of black people like this is where you need to go. It's inexpensive. The weather's warm. You know, it's not a lot of BS. But also, and I think somebody references it, Arizona did not want to make Martin Luther King a holiday. Yes. Yes. Day a holiday. It comes up like four times in the book. Yeah. And I think it, that was also a reason like people were being petty a little bit and just being <laughs> like, um, I'm going to come to you, even though it, I don't know how that makes sense, but I think it was just like a way of like, you don't want us there, so we're going to come, kind of. Maybe that's what it was. I don't know. Yeah, I I just looked up the history of that because I remembered, I remembered like knowing that Arizona had some issues with Martin Luther King Day, and I went and like looked it up, and for people who don't know this, so Martin Luther King Day was passed, I think, in 1983 by Ronald Reagan, and then it was like 19... 19- like 90, you know, 19, like 86, that the governor of um, Arizona was like, okay, we're going to do it. And then when he got voted out of office that next year with the January that it was supposed to be like 1987 or whatever, the new governor was like, no, fuck you, we're not doing this. And then a bunch of like artists and like celebrities basically pulled out of Arizona, including the Super Bowl. The NFL was like, we're not going to have the Super Bowl here anymore. And then that was supposed to be in 1992, which is when uh, and the book takes place in like 1990 or something. Mm-hmm. And so in 1992, they pulled out and they said, we'll come back once you approve the holiday. And they approved the holiday in 1993. And the Super Bowl was there in 1996. Mm-hmm. And and I just found that to be like, I feel like maybe that had come up in recent history when all that stuff was going on with Sheriff Arpaio or whatever recently in Arizona. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't really know all the details. And when I looked it up, I was like, this is some crazy stuff. But I loved that that was in the book. I loved that like there was real, you know, history and like real things happening. Like, you know, in the book, they talk about Whitney Houston and like they talk about Donald Trump and Cliff Huxtable and like mm-hmm. some people... Prince comes up and some people Mm -hmm. definitely age better than others as far as like the (laughs) references go. But I always love those like kind of meta moments, especially with Whitney Houston being brought up. I was like, this is incredible. 
Right, right. I I remember seeing these different references because sometimes people try not to put real historical figures in their books in order to like keep a, right. know, a timeless kind of thing so that you can pick it up at any point in history and like go with everything. But I really appreciated that um, even though it was jam packed with a lot of stuff that you still have this. It's really a, this book is really a time capsule. A thousand of, percent of that time for sure. And I like that. I, I think it's better. I don't like time, quote unquote, timeless things, because I feel like when you try to make it timeless, then it lacks the specificity. Like I knew exactly what I was dealing with from the first reference. I mean, it happens early. I think it's like Dick Clark comes up and like, because yeah. it's New Year's Eve and it's like, OK, great. I know where I am. I understand. And like, I also trust that what I'm being told is real, which I appreciate. I don't like I don't I don't like it when it's like President Schmonald Schragen. I'm like, just say Ronald Reagan. Like, I hate you. You know, like we don't right. we don't need this. We're adults here. Plus, it gave it gives you stuff to look up to be like, oh, who was that? Or like, what is that a reference to? Which I also really appreciate. Yeah, I like when books make you kind of explore to find the context and make sure that you're understanding everything uh, the way it should be understood. So I, yeah, I really I really dig that. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about some of the other things in this book that maybe aged well or didn't age well. I'm curious, aside from the fat phobia, which we both agree has aged very poorly, what were other things that you felt like either aged well or didn't age well in the book? Um, one thing that I, I really liked that, you know, it's it stated like very early um, from Savannah's chapter and just kind of repeats itself throughout, but it's just like, don't settle. Like that, mm. I think that's the overall message. And at one point, Savannah says something like, if I want something to happen, I have to make it happen. And that really resonated with me um, in the ways that these women had to take control of their lives. Like they were just trying to sit back and wait for men to arrive and, you know, choose them. Right. But Really, they had to make the choice to choose themselves, which sounds really cliche or mm -hmm, whatever, but mm -hmm. still, that, that that's what it was. So I think that overall message of like, don't settle, choose yourself right. has remained strong. And it, <laughs> reading this, I was just like, this is all the shit that I am dealing with as <laughs> a 40 plus woman. You know, the, uh, the women in the, at this point are like 35 and 36. But yeah. it's like, this is all the stuff that I am still dealing with as a single woman dating. And I was like, this is just, will this ever change? Like, I right. don't know, <laughs> will this ever change? So I also appreciated that, that even though it kind of left me a little frustrated and feeling a little hopeless, that there's still like this, um, I don't want to say a record, but still like this kind of example that what I'm going through is not new. It's not mm -hmm. special to me. It is something that a lot of women, especially if there were women who date men, especially if they're black women who date black men or just date men, period. It's just like we have to like deal with a lot of this stuff. So I really mm. appreciate it getting, even though, like I said, it left me very frustrated and a little hopeless, but I just enjoyed this confirmation that I was not alone in these, mm. <laughs> some of these really awkward experiences with dating. Yeah, I think you're right. Like, I feel like through recent history, there's this idea that comes up a lot about women being 
independent and strong and all of that. And I, I was thinking as I was reading this book, is that something that has come from Waiting to Exhale? Like, is that part of the legacy of this book as opposed to this book being in a tradition of something? Like, you know, nowadays we see so many things of like, I don't need him. I can go do this on my own, like all the Savannah stuff. And I wonder, like, was Terry McMillan one of the leaders of that, at least in modern culture? I don't know, but... That's a really interesting question because um, have you read any of her other books? I haven't. No, this is my first. No, that's okay. (laughs) Um, So like some of her other books, like Disappearing Acts, which Mm -hmm. was, is it Acts or Acts? Disappearing Acts, um, which was also made into a movie with Sinai Lathan and Wesley uh, Snipes. Oh. Um, That was not a very, I guess you could say a very feminist text. Okay. And it was not a very feminist movie because, I guess, spoiler alert, like <laughs> the <laughs> uh, the situation between those characters whose names I can't remember at, right now, but um, this couple, it was a really toxic situation. Mm. And at the end, they are still, there is this um, ambiguity, but it's clear that they are still like together in a particular kind of way. Right. And then there was some other, some other, oh gosh, what was another book that she did? Um, Basically it was kind of swallow yourself, you know, Mm. and just deal with, you know, a bad relationship, which I don't know. So I'm wondering if maybe that is why waiting to excel took off in the way that it did, because it was a little different from some of her other work. So I don't know necessarily that I would say that she created the blueprint or that people are following it because I think at that time in the nineties, I think a lot of black women were just going through, you know, from what I can remember, like my, you know, my mom and like older relatives and stuff like that. And just watching a lot of TV and everything. um, I think a lot of people were just trying to figure out, Oh, I don't want to be a wife and mom, you know, I don't want to be a stay at home mom. And, you know, they were trying to like, regain control of their lives in a particular way. Mm. And so this book and the movie just kind of came at the right time. And it, you know, I don't want to say it created the, a, a revolution, but I think it gave permission for your own right. internal revolution. If that, that's, if yeah, that's sort of yeah. what I was getting at. It's like that she, maybe not all of her books or even Terry McMillan herself, but like that this text became sort of the the blueprint for like, I can do my own thing if I want to. Like, I don't need, I don't have to be with a man. Like there's other options for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other like historical context of this book, which I found interesting is the book comes out in 1992, 1995, the movie comes out. And then in 1996, Oprah starts her book club. And I feel like black women reading publicly becomes a thing And I don't know. I know black women have always read, you know, like that. I'm not suggesting that that's the case at all. But I do think that like the Terry McMillan of it all and the Oprah of it all. And of course, Toni Morrison is the first book club pick. And there's like sort of this public moment to maybe to outsiders, like people who aren't black women that, oh, black women read and tell stories and all of this stuff. And I just find that to be very interesting, too. I don't know what it is, but like it feels like there's something there, you know? 
Yes, absolutely. Um, Because I remember reading a statistic that said Black women are the biggest group of readers. Black college educated women. Yep. Yes. Yes. I saw that too. So it was at this point, you know, there are always these waves when people realize, oh, Black people like this thing. We should cash in on it. Right. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. the 90s was a big Black literature boom, Mm -hmm. even though, like you said, Black people have always been reading and writing, but there was like this wave, you know, Black TV, Black movies, Black books. And so that's when um, we were getting stuff like Terry McMillan, um, this author, I think her name was Mary Monroe. She would write books like God Don't Like Ugly and Mm. God Still Don't Like Ugly and things like that. (laughs) So you had a lot of like um, contemporary churchy fiction that wasn't necessarily like inspirational, but just still, you know, was like this is for people who go to black churches, right? Right. That kind of stuff. And then, you know, that was like also when like Elin Harris, oh gosh, Eric Jerome Dickey, Mm -hmm. uh, Sister Soldier. So those, you know, those were like big, those waves were definitely starting. And so Oprah, I guess, you know, seeing the success of the book to the movie, and she was just like, you know, she, her people, whatever, and her team were just like, let's do this. You know, yeah. we have to. <sighs> That's another thing. I just think the country just follows black women. We yes. are trendsetters. <laughs> and, they just, <laughs> and they just follow us. So these are um, also black romance was um, finally getting. And because I know you don't read. The, <laughs> I know you don't read romance, but black romance was at that time starting to pop in a, a really specific way. So. Yes. So everything you just said, it was a very obvious kind of like progression of people trying to cash in on what black people were buying and watching and reading um, and listening to. So for sure. Yeah. I mean, and that I definitely feel like in the last five or 10 years, we're certainly seeing that again in black culture. Like I, I feel like the art that's coming out, the you know, quote unquote, mainstream things. Like, I mean, people are obsessed with us. Like, what can I I say? They should be. They should be. Yeah. I mean, like, imagine, imagine American, quote unquote, American culture without Black people would be a a real wreck. Okay. I want to talk about one of the things that I think aged horribly in this book, but but I don't think it's Terry McMillan's fault. I think it was a sign of the times, which is the homophobia AIDS stuff. Yeah. Oh man. And again, the book was written in 1992. It's about 1990. And I know and understand very well that at the time people were terrified of AIDS. They didn't understand it. They knew the wrong things, (laughs) you know, like they were told the wrong things. So like, I don't, necessarily think that Terry McMillan is homophobic or whatever. I just think that at the time, as a group, everyone was homophobic, very generalizing, you know, but like the hairdresser assistant who who has AIDS. And, and, oh, my God. And then the husband, the, uh, the dad of Tariq, Mm-hmm. who comes out as gay and was like, I used to be bi, but now I'm gay. And like Tariq's whole, you know, use of the F word, like, mm-hmm. holy cow. I was sitting at my seat like, can I just be finished with this part? Like, it was so hard to read. It was really, really bad to the point that I, whenever uh, 
we would see Gloria in the salon with the hairdressers, I would just kind of skim because I was so uncomfortable with the portrayal of the male hairdressers. And Tariq, you know, in the movie, he gets portrayed as kind of like, oh, he's just a teenager being difficult. But he was really awful to his mom, you know, with with the fat shaming and then just making her feel like crap about, you know, when, when the dad comes out and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But I agree with you 100%. Also, like that whole thing of like, I'm bi, but I was bi, but now I'm gay. That yeah. is such an old stereotype that, um, you know, bi erasure where people are just like, no, you're, you have to be one or the other. You can't, yep. and you know, you can't be bi at all. You're, this is just... Being bi is like a stepping stone to what you really want or whatever, right. which is just really awful. The other thing about this is like reading this now with the knowledge of Terry. And I again, I, you know, I know sometimes you're supposed to really like separate the author from the book. But you reading this now with the knowledge of what happened with Terry McMillan's personal life with her husband and that relationship that was the basis of how Stella got her groove back. And then it turned out that her husband, or now ex-husband, that he was gay or, right, you know, or queer. I can't. I don't know how he identified, but he, you know, eventually came out, and there was a lot of nastiness, you know, around that. Um, so I'm just like, again, just what's going on with Miss McMillan? Like what? <laughs> like right. I don't, you know, I don't want to call her homophobic, but definitely stuff in here was not very flattering, and I. It's really hard for me to know if it's just the text or if that's her putting some of her own thoughts into the text. You know what I mean? Because like, yeah. you have bad characters. That doesn't necessarily mean that you are a bad person because you're writing these bad characters, right? right? And right. I'm, when I say bad, I mean like moralistically, morally and ethically bad. But it really made, that was another thing that made me uncomfortable. Like I said, I was skimming over some of this stuff because I, like, I cannot read how she's talking about these people. Like this is, uh, you know, how she's writing these people. Right. This is really ugly and um, unnecessary, <laughs> to, right. honestly. Uh, it was definitely, you know, leftover stuff from the AIDS scare of the 80s. And people were trying to make sense of AIDS and how to navigate the world with AIDS in the 90s and what, you know, what that means to be around people with AIDS and how do you protect yourself and all that kind of stuff. But it was just really uncomfortable. One of the things that you actually just made me think that I sort of want to reframe what I said before, which is that I don't know that everyone or most people were homophobic necessarily, but I think books like this and a lot of like public portrayal and, you know, the words from the Reagans and, you know, I think that that leads to distortion of history maybe for someone like me who was younger um, in the 90s, early 90s, where I think that everyone was like that because that's what I see. But I I just want to acknowledge that I know there were plenty of people in the 80s and 90s who were not homophobic, who understood how HIV and AIDS worked. And, you know, if not for those people doing the work that they were doing and living the lives that they were living and being the people that they were, I think, you know, they get erased for these narratives of like, oh, we used to be homophobic, just like people get erased of like, oh, we used to be racist. You know, like I, I want to just acknowledge those people because what I said before is not fully accurate. And I don't want to I, I just want to acknowledge those people. Yeah. Um, OK, let's take a quick break and then we'll be right back. 
Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. Okay, we're back. I want to talk about another set of stereotypes that have not aged well, but felt like, holy shit, how 90s is this? Of like, black men ain't shit slash bitter black women. Like, the thing about the book that's interesting to me, and like we both touched on from the beginning, is the book sort of holds up great. And then also when you break it down, sort of holds up horribly. Like, like there's so many things to pick out to be like, that doesn't hold up. That doesn't hold up. That doesn't hold up, which I think is partially like pop culture. Like, I don't know that pop culture holds up great over time because it is so specific, like to that moment necessarily, give or take some things. But when I watched the movie, I watched it with my brother and his wife. And my brother was like, damn, ain't these some bitter black women? And I was like, right? Like, (laughs) The whole book and the whole movie, when you boil it down, is like sort of horrible. Like, yeah, I, I, yeah. So I was thinking about that because I was like, is this supposed to be a caricature? Like, is this supposed to, uh, I don't think it's necessarily supposed to be satire, but like everyone was so, the depictions of men when they were bad were so outsized they were so dramatically bad you know what i mean so even like um who's robin's boyfriend who's like on crack or doing cocaine or whatever right him <laughs> then you know every guy is cheating. russell's a baby daddy moment we have uh savannah's but guy who's a rich fancy doctor who's cheating like right everyone that savannah seems like was interested in was cheating um yeah. and you know even when she like she goes through a list of the guys that she's been seeing over the last few years. They're just all terrible, right. you know? And even when she's talking about, like, her sister's husband, he's awful. And her sister wants to leave him constantly. I wonder if we're supposed to, like, see 
so much of the bitterness and it's just like really hammered into our head so that we can finally be like, oh, we should treat black women with care. You yeah. Know? Yeah. You know, I want to I... give it that kind of like generous <laughs> reading for sure. You know, like I like want it to be that. I don't want it to be the like caricature version, but it's yeah. hard to balance. I think maybe also because the book is like recent, but old, you know, like yeah. it still feels so relevant. So it doesn't feel like. I don't know. It's harder for me to give it like a historical reading because it feels like, you know, it's in our lifetime. Because mm. uh, I, I remember when um, I don't necessarily remember when the book came out, but I remember when The Color Purple, the film mm. came out and a lot of black men were very upset at the portrayals of black men in that movie because they were like, there's no positive portrayal of black men in this in this movie. Um, and so that I I don't remember it clearly because I was too young for for that, but I do remember like this lasting trail of discussions about positive uh images of black men immediately. Like where are they? How can we get them? What does it mean when right. black women are not putting out positive images and stuff like that and all this kind of stuff. And so bringing up this discussion and and thinking about this, I'm also thinking about the stereotypes of like black men leaving black women for white Mm -hmm. women. Sure. Of course. So when Bernadine's husband leaves her for a white woman and it is just over and over, they keep saying John left her and then there's a pause and then it's for a white girl. And then it's just like, that's even worse. Like that is, you know, it's not a bad, like, him leaving is bad, but him leaving her for a white girl is yeah. even worse. And it doesn't even matter that she's younger, you know, which is which would probably be the thing that some people would focus on. Oh, you know, he's living for a 24-year-old. Mm-hmm. But because she's white, then that's like the super focus. And it's just like, um, I think it's this, I it reinforces this idea um, Black women doing so much work and then it, you know, getting so much work in the home and then it getting like shifted, the credit gets shifted or like the rewards get shifted to somebody else. And, you know, that was just a lot in, in the book. And I've forgotten how much that like they'd hammered down on the race stuff. And it was not very nuanced at all. <laughs> no, no, not at all. Um But again, that's what's like so interesting to me about this book, because if this book came out now, I would be like, this book is not good. You know, like it's full of all of these things that are not good. But I liked the book and I liked the way that it made me think about history and like the way like the cultural conversation and the shifts. And I I don't know. I feel like maybe I'm being like an apologist or something. I don't know. But like, I enjoyed reading it and thinking as I was reading like, oh, damn, or like, oh, that's interesting. And I think that the women hold up. A lot around the women don't hold up. But I think the women, the four women, they, for the most part, you know, aside from some homophobia, fat phobia, like horribleness, They hold up as humans. And and I think that that's probably the core of the book that when the book came out in 1992, all the way till now, is what folks connected with, right? Like the four of them. 
Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I think that's a really good point because I think if like someone who is 20 to 25 who has no frame of reference mm-hmm. for the 90s at all reads this now, they're just going to be like, this book is awful. Yeah. You know, or in, even if you were alive during that time and you're just now reading it, but you didn't have the experience of being like a black person in the nineties or a black person in a major city in the nineties, you would just, and you're reading it now, it would not go over well. So I do think that maybe my reading now, uh, my impression of it has been softened by the fact that I remember that time. And so Mm -hmm. it's easier for me to like place myself in that time period and be like, okay, I remember that the 90s were not the most progressive. I mean, we were trying, but, you know, obviously it's not like it is now. But that's what I meant like earlier. Like the women were still the heart, the meat of the text is still really good. And I think Terry McMillan did a really good job of giving us these very strong characters, even individually, like if you pulled them out of their friendship you know, of their connecting and friendship. And they were just like, and the book was just a collection of stories um, for each of them. I think that they would stand on their own very well. Um, But the connective tissue is still really strong and and bonding. Yeah. And I think also like the other thing that we haven't talked about that I think holds up really well is the female friendship, right? Like the bond between Black women to be there for one another through it all and not to be related, right? Like, I think we know that, I mean, I don't know, I know this in my personal experience in my family with my Black relatives and, and all of that, is that like Black families are very strong um, units and and oftentimes are very connected with like cousins and this and that. And sometimes they're not actually blood related and all of that stuff. But the chosen family as well is like so important, I think, for Black women specifically because of all these stereotypes that we get in the book, right? Like because of all these reasons and things that go wrong and all of that, like seeing their friendship really, I mean, it's, it's super moving. Like I think the support of Black women for one another is one of the most beautiful, powerful, incredible things. And and just like Color Purple, like reading it and, and seeing it. And I just, I, I find that to be super, super moving. Yeah. And one of the things that I picked up on this time around was how the women pampered themselves mm. and did the whole like self-care thing before we were calling it self-care mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. like the beauty rituals of the women um, you know, obviously hair was still a big thing. Hair is always going to be a big thing for black women. And so um, even though there was like, again, just kind of like this narrow minded view of like women who wore weaves and right. stuff like that and whatever. But there's still that what it means when you change your appearance and, and you are trying something new and you are giving yourself care in a particular way through your beauty regimen. So I really enjoy like picking up on that aspect through it. And then there was like one more thing that I was like, Bernadine's daughter is named mm-hmm. Onika. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was like, I don't know if Onika is a common name in Trinidad and Tobago, uh, where Nicki Minaj is from, but that is Nicki oh. Minaj's real name. Her first name is Onika, spelled the exact same way. And I am wondering if she was named after. <laughs> Do we know what year she was born? I don't know. Okay, I'm going to Google it right up. now. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Nicki Minaj was born 
in 1982. So no. Oh no. Okay. Never mind. That would have been really great though. (laughs) I know. Right. But I wonder now. So now I'm wondering where that name comes from. Um, That was definitely like that moment in the nineties too, where it was like, Oh, we're giving children African names. Like, right. Do you remember mm -hmm. that was like such a thing? Like Mm -hmm. half of my friends had like, you know, names like the son, like John. And then half of my friends had like African or like indigenous names. And I thought that that was, that's like such a reference in the movie for sure, or in the book for sure. Mm-hmm. Just kind of like this reclamation of yeah. history and ethnicity. Yeah. And the fucking husband, John, like hating all the black things and like that self-loathing black, you know, OJ Simpson-y vibe, right? Like where it's like, I don't have any black things in my house. I'm going to marry this white woman. Like that's like such a character. Not that John is a murderer. <laughs> I just... You know that he was yeah. he's one of the most prominent 90s anti-black black people. I feel like OJ. <laughs> well yeah. known for that. Yeah. So I, that was another thing that um I was like, oh, I'd forgotten about this. But that's something that's still I don't know if it's necessarily prevalent or really if it ever was, but this idea that black people's upward mobility mm. is predicated upon them their distance between their blackness. Yeah. <laughs> and so that was, you know, obviously a very strong commentary. Yeah. I feel like here. that's shifting. That's shifting for sure. Like, I think there's that reclamation of like, I can be black as I want to be and I can be successful. But I definitely think in the nineties, that was a thing. For I mean, sure. for sure. Yeah. Um. Oh wait, one more thing that has aged well, and then we'll get off yes. this. <laughs> Robin's obsession with like crystals and astrology and stuff like Robin. (laughs) Hello. Like because back in the 90s, that was like super woo woo stuff. Now there's like everyone. I mean, I live in L.A., so that might be part of my understanding. But I feel like everyone knows their rising sign, you know, like everyone is like into that. Like when I got pregnant, my friend was like, oh, well, what will what will your children's sign be? It's very important. I was like, well, I don't know. (laughs) Gonna find out. (laughs) (laughs) yes and it's interesting because that stuff was kind of uh used to characterize her as like an airhead or someone yeah like yeah they shouldn't take very seriously and like you know she is portrayed as like the silly tacky person or whatever and really she's just all of them just wanted to be loved they just Mm -hmm. want love and they want clarity in their life and you know Poor Robin. If Poor she could Robin. just. <laughs> Robin would do so well in 2021, I feel. Absolutely. I feel like Bernie probably wouldn't do great in 2021, but I feel like Robin would thrive right now. I think so too. I think I... so too. And I think Gloria, Gloria will be good. Gloria would be fine. 20... Yeah, she would be fine. And Savannah um... would, of course, be thriving. I feel like Savannah, yeah. Savannah's going to thrive wherever she is. Yeah. Um, Okay, the last thing we always talk about is cover and title. I think you and I have the same cover with like the woman looking out the window. Yeah. But there's also the black title or the black cover with like the four dancing women. Yes. Yeah, that's the one my mom had when I was growing up. I couldn't find her copy. I think she got rid of it. But the cover of this with like the woman gazing out the window at the tree is like truly isn't it's just a nothing to me. Like I'm like, okay. Like, yes, this does not look like the book at all. I think you need four people on the cover. And this is just like, I don't know. 
I completely agree with you again on this because I was like, this just looks like basic women's fiction. I mean, I guess that's what this book is categorized as is women's fiction. Right. But it just looks so generic. And I was looking for the um, a copy of the book with the black cover and the the art on it. Um, and so I was looking at used place used stores online, but it was a little expensive, um, yeah. or more than I wanted to pay at the time. <laughs> yeah. Um, because that, like you, that's the one that my mom had, um, the hardback with the, with the cover. And I remember that it, that also launched this particular prominence of black art, like mm. kind of abstract black art at the time. And everybody was going out getting that. I remember that, um, if not that artist, but then other art like it being mm-hmm. on, used for in magazines and all these other places. And it was like a sign of, of being bougie if you had that art yeah. in your in your house and everything if you got a print like it but <laughs> yeah I don't I think it needs re- the four women represented on the cover that's important because it's like I don't know who this is supposed to be yeah on the cover of this one and there's even another cover that I saw that was um even more generic and bland yes I saw this. that one too I can't remember it but I saw the the third cover I was like wait what yeah I don't know. I don't but, know who's in charge of the covers, but they need to get it together. Yeah, and then this cover has, and I understand this because this is you, this is usually what happens when you get to a certain level in publishing. But your name is much bigger than the mm-hmm. title, mm-hmm. and I just feel like the title should be bigger. Yeah, uh, or at least the same size. I agree. I, I yeah. I wonder if it's also because they wanted it to be all on one line. Because then do you do mm. waiting to exhale or do you do like waiting to exhale or do you do wait it like are you waiting to yeah. exhale? Like, I don't know. The title itself, I feel like it, com- it comes up early in the book. It comes up on like page 17 in our copy. Um, and it's Savannah talking about like wanting to finally like be able to relax a little bit in life and feel like comfortable where she is. And then she exhales when she's like with the weird guy who sells the fire trucks when they're dancing or whatever. Yeah. Oh, my God. He was a real psycho. Uh, I, <laughs> I really didn't like him. I was so <laughs> glad he was gone. But I don't know. I, I like the title. I don't I don't know that I needed an explanation in the text. Like I don't it didn't move me much when I got to that part or like it happens a few other times. I think Bernie exhales. Maybe they all exhale at some point. Yeah, I think that was a little overkill. I understand why it had to happen, but I do agree that it could have, um, I don't know, maybe there was a softer way to yeah. do it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Anything else you want to say about this book, Nicole? No, I don't think so. I um, There was another line, like maybe on the first page that Savannah says, there's a big difference between being thirsty and being dehydrated. And again, I, I think that that just goes, this speaks to the larger thing of don't settle. And like, um, you know, you can have a need, but you don't, maybe it's not as pressing as you think it is, you yeah. know, and, and, and kind of looking out for yourself and taking care of yourself in a, in a particular way. But I thought that was funny. Um, there are a lot of, oh, that's an, the humor of this book. Yes. Some, the sometimes, uh, you know, again, it's kind of wrapped in that fat phobia and the homophobia. But when it's away from those two things, the humor in the book is really sharp, I think. And it's it's not like, you know, a knee slapping mm-hmm. 
kind of funny, but it's definitely just like a little thing that makes you chuckle to yourself. So I think that kind of that stays, you know, that has aged uh, fairly well. Again, if it's not connected to those two major issues. Right. It sort of works. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. agree. There's definitely a good humor and like also the book just feels really black, which I like. Like it doesn't feel like she's yeah. writing it for white audiences at all. And that's cool because I feel like so many authors, at least now, are concerned about like being mainstream enough or like their editors or their agents or whatever are telling them like this won't sell. You need to change it. And like this book didn't really feel like that. Like it felt like she was like, I'm writing this book for black women. And like, this is it. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. That's one of the things. Um I think we've stepped away from the term own voices now, mm. from my understanding. But um, that's one of the things that I kind of, that bothered me is that it seemed like a lot of these books were explaining stuff to their white audiences. Mm-hmm. Or they were like, you know, there was just a lot of like, this is my culture. This is a cultural thing that we do. Right. And here's why, you know? And I'm just like, just just say it. You don't have to explain it. Because like what we talked about earlier we can go look up something, yeah. you know, we, we, we have the means to look that up, but yes, this book was just definitely for black women with, if you get it, you get it and you just keep it moving. <laughs> yeah. A thousand percent. Okay. Everybody. I think that will wrap up our conversation today with Nicole. Before we get out of here, I just want to remind you to check out Nicole's book. It is a memoir in essays. That's what, is that what you call it? A memoir in essays? That's what I call yeah. it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I've been calling it. So yeah, good job on you. You wrote something that I can <laughs> classify. Um, it's called Sometimes I Trip on a Happy We Could Be. It's named after a Prince song, not a Beyonce song. Um, you can find <laughs> Nicole on the internet. She's on Twitter. She's on Instagram. She's got a great website. It's all linked in the show notes. But do check out Nicole's book. Nicole, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you for giving me a reason to go back to this book. As you know, as problematic as it is in parts, it's still, it was still really refreshing and nice to reread it. I agree. I'm glad I finally read it. So thank you. Um, and everybody else, we will see you in the stacks. All right, that does it. Thank you all for listening. And thank you to Nicole for being my guest. I am thrilled to announce that in November, we will continue our journey through Toni Morrison's novels with Song of Solomon. We will be discussing the book on Wednesday, November 24th, and you can tune in next Wednesday to find out who our guest will be for that conversation. If you love the show and want inside access to it, head to patreon.com slash the stacks to join the stacks pack. Make sure you're subscribed to the stacks wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, be sure to leave us a rating and a review. For more from the stacks, follow us on social media at the stacks pod on Instagram and at the stacks pod underscore on Twitter. And check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. Our editor is Christian Duenas. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite. And our theme music is from Tagiragis. The stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. Mm-hmm.